Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's um, Sunday afternoon, just about, and... I'm going to deviate a little bit today, um, whatever. Today's podcast is being sponsored by Morris Friedman. It was his mom's birthday the other day, on uh, 24th, same as mine, so I, that's an easy way for me to remember. So he's doing this in honor of the two birthdays, very nice of him. Uh, uh, he, he, actually, we had the same Hebrew and same English birthday because, well, I guess that makes sense. I mean, you, you would understand that. Um so, thank you, Morris Freeman. Uh, there's a war going on, and it's a little crazy to talk about some obscure thing from the past when you have all this business seems to be going on, although Putin didn't consult me. But I just had a few ideas that I wanted to share over there. I mentioned in Shul yesterday, and I'm not sure people understand the complexity of the situation um, in, in many, many respects. So I just want to talk for a few minutes about it. We got Russia and Ukraine. It's not so clear to people. There never was a country called Ukraine, per se. But there's always been Ukrainian people. But it's very complicated. Long, long ago, you're going to laugh at what I'm going to say, unless you watch my YouTube's, you know, my YouTube channel. Long ago, I did, uh, in the past, a series on uh, Lithuania, and then on Jews in Lithuania, Jews in Poland. There used to be something called the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. It was a giant empire back in the 13-1400s. The Lithuanians conquered and ruled the area that you and I call the Ukraine. Later, the, the Lithuanians joined together in a marriage alliance with the Polacks and became the kingdom of Poland slash Lithuania, and the Ukraine was part of that. Not Russia. Not Russia. The thing is, the Poles, the Polish landlords, screwed the, the, the Ukrainians, who were usually peasants. This is the reason for the Gzeris Tachbatat, because... The Ukrainians were angry that the Jews were the agents of the Polish landlords. And so the guy who kicked you out of the house, and the guy who came to collect the rent, and the guy who did all the kind of things you know, that today you hire collection services and things like that, were Jewish. Because that's what Jews did for a living. It's one of the things Jews did for a living. They were the agents of the landlords, the landlords being Polish nobles, but the people getting screwed at the bottom were the Ukrainians. It built up a rage, plus they were Jewish and they were doing it to Christians. And that erupted in what we call the Chemelnitsky Uprising, Xeris Tachbatat. The Ukrainians thought that they're going after, wasn't stop anti-Semitism in the Velderine. They figured the Jews were oppressing them, you get it? Now, they were very savage to the Jews, but this, the, that's the background. So even then, the Ukraine was under the rule of the Kingdom of Poland. But, um, as a result of Xeris Tachbatat, as Xeris Tachbatat, and the war that broke out between the Ukrainians on the one hand and the Polish on the other, the Ukrainians kind of got a shtickle independence. But they made a big mistake, and they teamed up with Russia, which is the country next door, and little by little, the Russians swallowed them up. So in other words, they made a bad shidduch. You get it? The Russians swallowed them up. So if you're a Russian like Putin, you say like this, this has been part of Russia since, you know, depending on which part of Ukraine you're talking about, from the 1600s or... 
Later, Catherine the Great finished off in the 1700s. So I noticed that one time or another, what we call the Tsarist Russia expanded and eventually took over the Karka of all the Poland-Lithuania kingdom, that whole giant area, and that became part of Russian Empire. The thing is, when I was a kid and all the rest of it, nobody thought of Ukraine like a country, because it hadn't been a country. And even these other, and Belarus was never a country, you know. It was always belonged to somebody else. But the locals don't see it that way. The locals say we are a people of our own, and we've been crushed under Russia. And the Russians always wanted to try to erase the Ukrainian identity, because they said they look like us, they're all white people, we can Russianize them. And so they prohibited the use of the Ukrainian language, and, you know, try to push the Russian religion, all kind of junk like that. So if you are a Ukrainian, which I'm not, right, Ukrainian guy, you feel that the Russians really screwed you over, historically. <clears throat> and that's why, at the beginning of the 20th century, there was like Ukrainian national movement, they should get their own country. You get it? Now the Russians, it didn't happen. In the First World War, the Germans conquered Ukraine, and were about to set up a, a separate country called Ukraine, under a German prince. Uh, it's a long, complicated story, but that's what was going to happen. But Germany lost the First World War, so that fell apart. And the Soviets conquered Ukraine during a whole bunch of bloody civil wars between the pro-Russian Ukrainians, the anti-Russian Ukrainians. There were 10, 20 armies fighting each other. It was in that crazy situation where you have 10 or 20 armies fighting each other that they killed 100,000 Jews. You hear what I said? They murdered 100,000 Jews. Who did it? Ukrainians. Is it the Ukrainians? No, but it was Ukrainians. In other words, this guy had an army here and this guy had an army here. Some Ukrainian armies went through and didn't bother the Jews. The ones we're talking about did bother the Jews and murdered them in horrible ways. By the way, I did this in a, recently. If you're interested in this subject, you want to see the disgusting photos, The uh, it's online. You know, if you just Google Ukrainian massacres of Jews 1919, 1920, apparently the American Jews send over a film company at that time, you know, silent. And your mama see all the dead bodies and stuff. It's like, ugh. Uh, you see, but it's very, very complicated. Because do you blame the Ukrainians? Or do you just blame Ukrainians? The leader of Ukraine that time, or the guy who tried to be the leader of Ukraine, was a guy named Petlura. Petlura. who was intellectual. Petlura himself was not really anti-Semitic. Matter of fact, he made a deal with Jabotinsky, the Jewish leader, like to protect the Jews. But... He was seen as being the head of the of the country where they killed all the Jews, which is why he ran away and moved to Paris when the communists took over, and a Jew shot him. A guy named Schwarzbart. These are famous stories. In like 1927 in Paris, he just walked over to him and shot him dead. And the French jury, uh, what do you call it, let him go. You know, they did not convict him because he said, I killed him because he killed all my people, 100,000 people. And he had a good lawyer, Schwarzbart. And what he called, you know, he got off. But on the other hand, if you want to be really historical about it, it's not, you know, but if you say Petlor to someone like my father's generation, oh, he's like Hitler, you see. So it's very complicated, okay? And then in the 20s and 30s, 90% or so of Ukraine was under Russia, 10% was under Poland. The Russians screwed them over, the Polish screwed them over. So Ukrainians were seething with hatred, okay? When they tried to resist Stalin, he killed like six or seven million of them by starving them to death, just taking away the food. That's who Stalin was. 
Imagine a town and there's no food. <laughs> Plain and simple. He takes away all the food. There's no food. There just isn't any. Goes a day, two days, three days, four days. Imagine what things are like. It was done by cannibalism and stuff like that. It's unbelievable. And uh, the Poles also took it to him. When Hitler took invaded, this is the real tragedy. When Hitler invaded, so he so, so first of all they hated the Polacks. Second of all they hated the Russians. Third of all they hated the Jews because they identified the Jews with the Russians. Plus they didn't like Jews. You know they hated the Jews, and uh, they were savage towards the Jews. Okay, I'm talking about the Holocaust. They thought that Hitler was going to set up a country called Ukraine. If he would have had a little bit of common sense. He would have done exactly that, and then the Ukrainians would mamish be his allies. But he wanted to screw Ukraine also, and so the whole thing got very complicated. And as we all know, Stalin eventually reconquered all the Ukraine, and um, the Ukrainians fought him. People don't notice for five or ten years after World War II, most of us were not aware. In the late forties and fifties, there was a war going on in Ukraine for Stalin to finish off the Ukrainians who were resisting him. That's who these, they're tough, get it? They're tough. And, uh, by the way, and if you're Jewish, you know, you were pro-Stalin because the Russians will keep law and order, the Ukrainians will come out, they'll kill everybody. So it's super complicated. So they weren't able to get a, a state in World War One, in, in the middle of the two wars, and during the World War Two either. And by the time it's over, they were back under the Soviet Union. And Stalin kept up the fiction that it's like a semi-independent country because he got an extra vote in the UN. If you take a look, and do you, well, it wouldn't matter to you now, but if you're interested, go back to when the Cold War was around. Russia had like several seats in the United Nations. There was the USSR, then they had a separate seat for Ukraine, then they had a separate seat for Belarus, even though these countries were, you know, really part of Russia. So the bottom line is, it cut through all the baloney, the Ukrainians hate this. And now when Russia fell down in 1990, Ukrainians proclaimed liberty, and they set up their own very big country. You get it? Very big country, which is a big chunk of what you think of Russia, but they say, we're not Russian. Um, at that time, Russia said, okay, you know, we'll make peace with it. Obviously, Putin is so fanatical, and he surprised me. I didn't think he was going to go in, because I, I still can't believe, what does he want to do? Take over and then bring back a Stalinism in this day and age? You want to suppress everybody and set up concentration camps? and massacre millions of people. I mean, that's what you're talking about. And do all kind of stuff like that, and then set up secret police. I mean, do you really want to go through all that? It, it, it spend a belt of money on this? Unless he figures that they're adding this economy to Russia's economy, make them bigger. But I, the main thing is, as I understand it, and as you know, when I'm talking over here, I only say what my understanding, is that from Russian perspective, I repeat, from Russian perspective, historically, it was very good for them to rule the Ukraine because that pushed their frontiers way to the west. And that means anybody who wants to attack Russia has to start from far back. So the reason that Hitler did not succeed or Napoleon did not succeed is because the jumping ground was at all the edge of the Ukraine. So to get to Russia, you had to go and fight your way all through the Ukraine with the, with the Russian army there. And then by the time you got to Moscow, it was winter. It's too late. That's what happened to Hitler, that's what happened to Napoleon. So I do understand, from a Russian perspective, it's could die for them to have like a huge buffer zone that you and I call Belarus and Ukraine. If you look at the map, you'll see it. But from the people locally, they don't like it. Right? We don't want to be that. 
and we want to be our own country. And they and and you know the Soviet Union when they ran the Ukraine did all this KGB and all this junk. So everybody there lost people, and they all hate the Russians fiercely, which is why they're fighting like crazy. I don't know what's happening line by line. My son, Yulia, keeps me appraised with all the uh, bulletins, you know, with all the with all the news over there. But you can see they're fighting like blood bloodhounds, uh, bulldogs. I mean, you know, the the Ukrainians don't want to do it, and they're not afraid to die. Now, what's interesting from the Jewish perspective is several things. Because the reason I'm interested from Kalyusra perspective, as you in this podcast, obviously, and it has several spins. Um, first of all. The modern country of Ukraine, when they finally, 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 after many centuries, after World War One and after this, and after the 1800s, you have to understand, they used to have their own Cossack empire, and Catherine the Great, like, destroyed it, the, the Russian empress, back in the 1700s, they go to Sitch. Uh, the, the Russians try to change the history all the time and make it look like they're friends with the Ukrainians, but the Ukrainians don't see it that way. And the Russians are very good in propaganda. I remember they made a movie... 10, 20 years ago, Taras Bulba, which was a famous novel from Gogol. Gogol was a, uh, was a Russian writer, was a Ukrainian writer, really. You get it? And I'm not going to bore you with all the details of Ukrainian national culture, but it's not boring to a Ukrainian. There was Taras Shevchenko and all these guys, which the Russians suppressed. But this guy, Gogol, who's a world-famous writer, wrote a book about Taras Bulba, a Kazakh chief, who ended up shooting his son because he's in love with a Polish girl, I think. That was the story. I haven't seen this in a long time. There were Jews in the, in, in, in very much in that novel also. Gogol was an anti-Semite, but he had a lot of Jews in, in, in the novel, the way it's originally written. The movies left the Jews out. Because uh, Hollywood made a movie, like in the 60s, and then the, so, the Russians made a movie. And the Russians, Tyrus Bulba said, I guess, our only hope is to be part of Russia, which is a bunch of bull. So, you know, it's a Russian propaganda. The Ukrainians didn't like that movie. You see how it works in Eastern Europe? It's unbelievably complex. Right? That's why we're lucky we got out of there. But a lot of Jews didn't get out of there. Let me see how many Jews are still in Ukraine. One minute. Yeah, I thought so. It's unbelievable. Don't look at the news things. They're they're fudgy. But if you go for the regular history of Ukraine, I'm looking over here and it says that they're like around 400,000. That's a velt. And, and in the year 2014. So let's say 350,000. That's No, it's not a small thing. Get it? It's very big. It's not a small thing. It's, it's, it's very, very big. Um, now, the, here's the funny part. All these countries in Eastern Europe, like Ukraine, whatever their past was, and they certainly did kill the Jews in 1919, and I'm going to go weiter than that. The Ukrainians were cooperating with Hitler. When I say the Ukrainians, let me rephrase that. Ukrainians were cooperating with Hitler in the concentration camps. You get it? They were... Ukrainian guards and murderers in the Warsaw Ghetto, in all the ghettos, in the extermination camps. They did a vote of the shooting of Jews. You know, there was a, what do you call it, the Holocaust by bullets. Um, between In six months of 1941, between the time Hitler invaded in June of 41 to the end of the year of 41, the, uh, the Germans, with their friends, including the Ukrainians and Lithuanians and Latvians, Estonians. I'll say it again. The Germans, with their buddies, the, the Ukrainians, the, 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 the Lithuanian, Latvian, Estonians, and, and Belarusians, not the Poles, not the Poles, shot one and a half million Jews. You hear what I said? So 
you know, if you're yeshiva-oriented, you've heard of hotels and these places being shot by the Litvaks, which is true. But if you go to East, and you go to Lemberg, and those kind of places, Lvov, and whole huge areas where the Chabina Rebbe was, and all that kind of stuff, Eastern Galicia, the Ukrainians shot an, a velt of, of Jews. Okay? So, they had blood in their hands, no question about it. Having said that, when you, which uh, which is absolutely true, I repeat, the Poles were not part of this, but the Ukrainians certainly were. And I have friends, and uh, there's a few survivors I still know, that, you know, they'll tell you, if you were in the concentration, like Bergen-Belsen, the Ukrainian guards were terrible. You know, mom was terrible, because they're unbelievably savage. There's reasons for this. Ukraine used to be in the border province with the Ottoman Turkish Empire. And whenever there's a border province, they, the war never stops. A raids B, and B raids A, and then again, again, so everybody gets increasingly savage, you know. In other words, I'll freak you out by popping out your eyeballs. You say, oh, really? I'll uh, roast you and toast you. Oh, really? I'll slice this off and cut that down and burn this out. You see, everybody's upping the ante and the tortures. So the Ukrainian culture is a, is, a, is, a, is a culture of torture. I mean, if they get old, the Russians, if they want to, you know, they, could, they can really do stuff to them. That's who they are. Now, having said that, when the Ukraine became an independent country in, what, 1991 or something like that, because it was the late 90s, and because they wanted to break away from Russia, and because the U.S. was the number one power, and because the West, the America and the Western Europe, had bought into the Holocaust nar- narrative, you understand? So the Ukrainians said, we're going to be nice to the Jews. The Jews are full citizens. We're not going to have any anti-Semitism. Whatever happened in the past happened in the past. You know, but we're not going to bother the Jews. I'm talking about at the official national level. Um, and anybody who's been in Ukraine knows there is anti-Semitism among the people. That's in every country in Eastern Europe. But as far as the government, the police, and all that junk, you know, they're, they're, they're okay. You get it? I was in Ukraine a couple of years ago. I mean, that doesn't prove anything. But I was at this yeshiva, and then we had a lunch, uh, a dinner at that place. And, you know, it's all under the protection of the police and the government. So they were smart enough to say, you know, but we're not Nazis. We don't identify with that stuff. Of course, they'll try to change the past a little bit. You know how it goes. Because nobody wants to admit you know, my grandfather was a momser, you know, and killed everybody. So they, that's what you find in Eastern Europe, like sort of attempts to, to uh, deny the Holocaust to some degree, or or I didn't do it. You understand? Believe you me, Ukraine wants good relations with Israel, a good relation with the Jews, and if the Jews would agree not to talk about, listen closely to what I'm saying, if the Jews would agree to play ball and just not talk about what the Ukrainians did in the war, the Ukrainians would give you everything. All they want is don't bring up our bad past. That's the same thing in Belarus, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, all these countries in Europe. They really want to get along with Israel. They really want to get along with the Jews. Hanging over the head is the, is the terrible past, what they did to the, the Jewish people in the past, which is true. All that horrible stuff. I know what I'm talking about. They, what they really, they can't say it this way, but that's why, you know, they're hinting. Let's just not talk about, you know, 1939 to 1945, and everything will be great. We'll have good relations with Israel. We'll have trade. We will support you in the United Nations, and they do. We'll back you up against the Arabs, etc. Any Jew who wants to move to Israel gives them to hate, no problem. 
Uh, as you know, if they want to come to Uman and all this kind of junk, even though the locals don't like it, but the national government lets them have it, it's it's you know this is this is the the funny thing the way it is, okay? This is the funny thing the way it is. Now, um, here's the thing. So therefore, you find yourself in a situation where Putin, for understandable reasons, said like this: "Well, I'm going against the Nazis. Why? Look what happened." As we see from Putin's point of view, it's very sneaky. By pointing out all the bad stuff the Ukrainians did, and I repeat, they sure did in the Holocaust, no question about it. Then that makes Putin say like this, Russia is the friend of the Jews. Russia was not part of the Holocaust, right? Actually, we liberated the Jews. Uh, that's a, it's a fact. You know, that, believe me, Stalin did not fight the war to liberate the Jews. But you can, it is true, and Bibi, who right now should be in charge of Israel. I mean, he is a crook, but it's Legabe Russia and all that stuff, he's the best one, in my opinion. When this, you know, Legabe, this particular um, Nakuda, which is very, very important for Israel, the relation with Russia, I'm sorry, but it's the way it is. You understand? It's the way it is. We live in a world with a couple of big bears. You simply have to be aware of that. Okay? So, um, these are the the... the from the Putin point of view, he's saying, I'm going to take over Ukraine. The country is run by these Nazi-type guys. Look what they did in the Holocaust. We, the Russians, are the pro-Jewish, pro-democracy types. I know it's bull. I'm just telling what he says. And therefore, we're justified in conquering the country. I mean, that's, as I see it, that's essentially his argument. You understand? Uh, now, the reason Putin wants to do it is because he's obsessed that Russia lost all his territory. And it's unsafe to have a big country like Ukraine next to you, which might join the Americans, might join the NATO. And from his point of view, you know, he wants to to take it over. Um, in my opinion, for what it's worth, as far as I can see, I can't see him wanting to add it to Russia. Maybe just because I don't think he was going to invade either. But I think the, the war, the way it's going now, reminds me of the Finland war. Stalin attacked Finland in 1939, and the Finland gave him a bloody nose. It's very interesting. The Mamish cut up the Russian armies and surprised everybody, and the Finns fought very courageously under General Mannerheim. But in the long, long run, when Stalin brought up millions and zillions, they crushed the Finns. But since they fought so hard, so Stalin said, like this, all right, I won't occupy your country, but you're next door to Russia. You're like under Russia, so to speak. So Finland, from the 1940s until the end of communism, always had a funny kind of status. It was a free country, and it, I was there, and it's a free country, and it's very clean and prosperous, and this and that and the other. They never did anything that could possibly make Russia feel bad. That's like the rules of the game. You happen to live next door to a bear, <laughs> right? And since you live next door to a bear, you can do whatever you want, just don't say anything bad about bears. That's all. So Finland never joined America, and they never protested when Russia did anything, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In return for which they had their own country. You have your own culture. You do your own thing. In my opinion, that's what Putin would like to have, like for, for, for um, Ukraine and these other countries, you know, Belarus and the Baltic states. Do your own thing. We're not going to bring Stalin back. We're not going to round up a million people in concentration camps the way he did. But just don't do anything that could tick off Russia. Apparently, the Ukraine isn't like that, at least to his 
perspective, Ukraine would like to join the NATO. And from his point of view, it's a danger to, to Russia. It's a danger to Russia. Therefore, we have to make a move. And here comes the point. Um, one second. It sneezed. Um, here comes the point how it impacts on Israel. In my opinion. In my opinion. If he gets away with this, let's say Putin takes over and conquers Ukraine. And nothing happens to him. So then, we've entered a new era. Because China will take over Taiwan, and North Korea take over South Korea, and etc. And Iran will take over the Gulf, the Gulf states and Iraq. Because Hutra Haritsua, since 1945, you and I have lived under what we call the United Nations system, which is a brand new Zah. Until then, there wasn't a, such an international law thing like that. And instead, it was called the Olengvar. The strong nations ate the weak nations, like in the jungle. The strong eat the weak. And the only way to prevent that was what they called the balance of power. So throughout history, if if I was, let's say, for example, England, and I was being threatened by France, I formed an alliance with, you know, Germany and Spain, so now we can outweigh the French. You see what I'm saying? And now the French can't attack us because we and our allies are, like, too strong. Uh, or the other way around. If France was being attacked by Germany, they would hook up with this one and this one. The trouble is, it's very uh, messy, and it usually broke down into a war, and that's why the history of Europe is the history of continuous wars. You understand? I believe, until the 1945, certainly in the older days, every year, every time, all the time, there was a war somewhere in Europe. Somewhere. Uh, if it wasn't in Western Europe, it was in the Balkans, or in the Eastern Europe, it's, it's interesting. And in the old days, more so, you know, when Germany was a bunch of different warring states, Italy was a bunch of different warring states, etc., etc. Seems to be something called the balance of power. And World War II, for example, is a perfect example I'm talking about. Germany, as long as they didn't mess with the balance of power, nobody stopped Hitler in the 1930s. When he tried to upset the balance of power and become super strong, that nobody else was as strong as him, it eventually, th that would result in a Germany that was so super powerful, they could swallow everybody else up. The natural reaction to that was for England, France, and Russia to team up in a grand alliance against Hitler to maintain the balance of power and prevent Hitler from eating them up. But on the other hand, they wiped out Germany, and that left like no balance of power either, and end up, in, as you know, with the Cold War, America balanced against Russia. That's called the balance of power. But meanwhile, the Americans, ever since World War I, but they did in World War II, said this is not a good system because we wars all the time. LMI makes something called United Nations. And we establish international law. And if anybody breaks it, everybody else will, will gang up on them. So um, that way you make the international state system subject to laws. And the borders of every state, once the United Nations recognize them as a state, recognize their borders, nobody's allowed to mess with those borders. So even when you find here or there that, you know, somebody invaded the other country, eventually they had to pull out, they couldn't change the border. <clears throat> you can't change the borders. That became a part of the international law. That's not the only part of it. 
the Americans got the Europeans to get together in the European Union. You know, they said England and France, we enough of these wars. You had 10,000 wars. From now on, get along. So you have to give it to Truman and these other guys. They stopped the wars in Europe. You see? Uh, now, not Eastern Europe. That was ruled by Russia, but the Western Europe. So the state of Israel was born in this system, as you and I know, because it was born in 1948. The problem is Israel never got recognized borders. So they're in a funny situation, but they do have legitimacy as a member of the state of the United Nations. That was That's what gives them their international law legitimacy. <laughs> okay? Now, as I said, one of the rules is you can't take anybody else's karka. Um, as you and I know, Israel is in a funny situation because they, have the, they occupy the West Bank and the Golan Heights today. Now, the West Bank, the status is unclear. That's why the United Nations never actually forced or punished Israel out of there. It's not like the Palestinians ever set up a state there in 1948. And the status is unclear. And the Jordanians had it, but also Shaloke Derkdin. And it's a mess. You and I know that if it's up to the Israel... They would like to annex uh, the West Bank for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, they don't know what to do with the population, the Arab population. That's the main reason they haven't done it. But notice, they would like to break the international law, so to speak. But you can't, because America and everybody will punish you. They never did. The closest you came was Trump, who wanted to do some kind of a, you know, give extra territory to Israel. Remember last year, two years ago, whatever it was, which the Arabs rejected. Put that aside. Now you have the very... I'm telling you the way I see it. Now you have the very interesting situation of the Golan Heights. Listen very closely. The Golan Heights was part of Syria. Israel conquered it in the, in the 67 war. It's true the Syrians were shooting at them, but Israel conquered in the 67 war. Under the international law, Israel cannot annex it to Israel. The most they can do is China, we're going to keep occupying it until there's a peace treaty with Syria... Because the Syrians were shooting at us. That's the most you can do. Nevertheless, Menachem Begin, back in 1980, said we're annexing it. According to Israeli way of thinking, Israeli law, Israel just took over and added to Israel this territory called Golan Heights. <clears throat> How can you do that? It's against the UN system. So Israel attaining basically the following. If you look at the map... You have the Jordan River, that's where Israel gets the water. They get the water from the Kinneret. The Kinneret gets its water from little rivers above it, north of it, which are located in Syria. Hear what I said? So again, Israel gets the water from the Yardin. The Yardin gets the water from the Kinneret. The Kinneret gets its water from the little rivers. The Yarmouk, this, that, and the other. I'm not a water expert, but you can see on the map. Okay? And they have the head, they, they have their beginnings in Syria, north of the of the, you know, territory. Now, Israel occupies it now, but I'm saying it was part of Syria. The Syrians in the 1960s had a plan to cut off the water to Israel and screw Israel over by making them all die from thirst. This is really what triggered the, 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 the Six-Day War, if you go back to the roots. You know, this is what they wanted to do. They didn't do it in the end. They weren't able. They were like, stop before it could happen. But this is what they wanted to do. So, in other words, let's put it this way. Suppose Israel gave back 
uh, the Golod today to Assad in Syria, who's hooked up with the Iranians, these other junk, they would do it. They said, let's stick it to Israel, force the death of Israel by cutting off the water. You hear what I'm saying, right? So based on this Taina, Israel's always said like this, Enochnami under international law, I get it, you're not supposed to take another country, but if you have a piece of karka next to me, and you're using it in such a way to kill me, then my life is stronger than your international law claim. You know what I'm saying? So Israel said, we have to own the Golan Heights, because that's where the water is, without that we die. Without that we die. That's it. Now, it all depends how you want to look at it. You can say, I hear the Israeli Taina, or you can say, nye, 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 you know, it's, no, you're not allowed to change any borders under the nation system. Right? You, you know, as they, as they call it in the treaties, the uh, inadmissibility of the acquisition of territory by armed force. That's how you call it in, in the treaties and in the United Nations resolution. Inadmissibility of the acquisition of territory by, by force. <clears throat> now, Israel's saying like this. That's good when it's simply, you know, you're next to me and I take your land. But you have land. It's a little bit like Baba Basra, you know what I mean? He's like, you have land that really is totally no gain, controls me. If I give it up and you cut off the water, I'm going to die. And the other guy's, well, nevertheless, you have to give it back to me. You see? So the State Department and all the whole world sided with Syria. They say, you can't just annex somebody else's land. And I don't know why Israel did not make a good case of it. Plus, the others will say like this, give it back and we'll have international guarantees, you know, that the Syrians won't do it. It doesn't justify taking over somebody else's land and annexing it. Let's just figure out a system that, you know, it won't be a threat to you. Now, Israel, obviously, so far, so far, Israel, obviously, so I guess you can't trust them. Now, I have to be careful about this. There were Israeli governments, and there are today, believe it or not. Been, who've been crazy enough to say we're, we're, we're willing to explore that. Rabin, uh, Paris, Olmert, uh, Bennett now, maybe? Uh, you, you understand what I'm saying? Uh, I mean, Bibi talked about it, but he was just shooting the bull. He wasn't really going to do it. But there were, you know, Israeli governments that said, okay, we'll give it back, but with guarantees. Um, I think it's crazy, but I'm, but I'm not them, you know? Now, um, here's the weird part. Two years ago, I think it was two years ago, out of nowhere, Donald Trump said, I hereby recognize <laughs> the Golan as part of Israel. That, to me, is the most unbelievable part of the Trump administration. You know, um, for uh, Ira Friedman, uh, Morris's brother, got me a birthday present, the, the new book by, what's his name, you know, the ambassador, David Friedman. I think you saw it built in the, in the Mishpach or the Ami, wherever it is. He wrote a book called Sledgehammer. I gave it to a guy who reading first, Rabbi Semenovitz, because he was a classmate of his. But, um, you know, David Freeman was on the, you know that, he was on the Trump team for the Middle East. He's the ambassador to Israel. And who was the other guy? Jared. And, you know, the whole cover from yesteryear. We forgot to cast the characters, because now it's Biden. To my mind, the most unbelievable thing Trump did was that. Because that really went, goes against the State Department. You know, the, moving the embassy in Jerusalem is chashev, no question about it, but it's like a real estate move, you know. Uh, recognizing the fact that, you know, the President of the United States is the one who's covey at a foreign policy of this country under the Constitution. It's not the State Department, it's the President. Uh, 
So the fact that President of the United States said the United States of America recognizes that Israel annexed the Golan Heights is like a breach of international law. I, I can't believe he did it. I still don't know the whole part, so I have to read it in the book. But it's an amazing zach. Um, and it means that he buys Israel's argument. I'm talking about Trump. He buys Israel's argument that, you know, the fact you own the land, but the fact you used it to try to cut off the water to me and kill me gives me the better right to the land than you. Like I say, it's like a Baba Basra type of thing. It gives me a be better right to the land than you because it's my life. You know, get to my life. You see? Now, it's I'm watching closely. So far, so far, Biden did not withdraw that. You get it? Uh, I remember, I mean, can you imagine? This is a nightmare. Stalin's like, can you imagine if we had Bernie now? Or Elizabeth Warren? Stalin is going to be a nightmare. But, you know, on this, and another thing, Biden has not changed that yet. Okay? Maybe he will, maybe he won't. I hope he doesn't, but... So, if what I said, if that's true, the United States is in a very funny situation. They're against any country breaking the law and taking land from somebody else, except Israel can take the, the Golan Heights. <laughs> that's, that's uh, I, don't, I don't know if you realize it. Trump is a wild card. I mean, that's, that's who he is. He's a wild card. And, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing. Now, I'll tell you why I mentioned this. Putin basically kind of is the same thing. Putin basically says, is, and again, I'm sharing my understanding. Putin basically says like this. Ukraine is another country, but it's, Russia cannot live safely without owning the Ukraine or controlling it. It's a threat to Russia. So some enemy could creep up. Instead of having to attack Russia from far away, they could attack us from Ukraine real close. How far away is Moscow? 100 miles, something like that. They, 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 wipe it, they, they conquer us. And so it's necessary or national security, that the Ukraine can't be an independent separate country. You hear that? So it's it's not exactly the Israeli claim, but it's along those lines. And I'll tell you what's really interesting to me, which led me to mention it today in this podcast. I noticed when the invasion started, what was it, on Thursday, two, three days ago? So, you know, Israel's in a bad spot. Um, under Bibi, they... If you ever paid attention, they really tried their best to kiss up to Russia. And I don't blame them a bit. You understand? The Russians are in Syria. You know, uh, they can give Syria to develop the missiles. Uh, the Russians are in bed with the Iranians. Who knows? It's necessary for Israel to have a good relation with Russia. Like I said before, you're living next door to a bear. You have to acknowledge that. <laughs> it reminds me of the famous story in the Gemara which is really from the Aesop's fable about, you know, what is it, the, guy, the, the, the stork who pulled out the, the, the bone from the throat of the lion, remember that? And he said, listen, just to say I had my head inside the lion's mouth and didn't get swallowed up, does Elaine is a big thing, which is true. Rabbi said, I can't help it. Israel is living in a world with big bears, and one of them is Russia, and they can make a lot of trouble for Israel. And therefore it was Kedai... I saw a BB went every 10 minutes to Moscow and every time there was a Russian commemoration of the World War II and this and that, the other, the Red Army, he's always there bringing flowers and he brought Putin to uh, Israel to Yad Vashem a year ago or two years ago or something like that and he kissed up to him outrageously. is necessary, you see? Now, as a result of that, Russia has been, for Russia, 
fairly favorable towards Israel. I'm talking about Putin. You get it? Didn't come out and attack them and so forth, even though they are in bed with the Arabs, and Russia has had a major um, presence in Syria since the 1950s. I don't think people realize that. The Russians have been, the Soviets have been heavy in Syria, heavy, 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 since the 60s. I mean, they're the ones that caught Ellie Cohen in 1965. You know, it's a, they've been there a long, long time. And that means there's a large lobby in Moscow. Uh, there's a large lobby pro-Syria. And they've kept, as you know, they're keeping this guy in power. Uh, uh, what's his name? Assad. Uh, they're the ones who did it. They carpet-bombed the opposition. The carpet bombed them. They just bombed the hell out of them. Now, they didn't care about civilian casualties, nothing like that. They don't care. They're the Russians. Now, here's the thing. So when he invaded Ukraine, so what's Israel supposed to do? Believe you me, if it was up to Israel, they wouldn't say a word. You get it? The best thing is abstain. Just shut up. But Israel can't do that either. You got America... You got the whole civilized world looking. You're going to say to Israel, you're not protesting? You're saying? You're not protesting? You're saying this is okay? You know, what's wrong with you? How can you do that immorally? So, on the first day, I think I heard this on the news, Israel basically said this, we think this is wrong. Gamarnu, shut up. And Russia even said, okay, I understand Israel had to say it. As long as that's all you said, fine. Because, you know, I know you're under pressure. But then the Israeli uh, foreign minister was a Yair Lapid or something like that, so like this. In addition to that, he had extra deburim. He said, this is particularly outrageous. It's terrible what the Soviet, what Russians are doing. Blah, blah, blah. Well, you know what? The Russian foreign minister didn't say like this. Derech Agav, I want you to know we do not recognize the Golan Heights as part of Israel. And Israel had no right to take away land from Syria. And why did they bring that up? Because to them, it's tit for tat. You saying nobody has the right to take any land, then you don't have any right to take any land. How come it's one standard for Israel and no standard for Russia? You see how the Russians see it? You tell me you need the Golan for your security. Well, we need the Ukraine for our security. So it's a very tricky business. And if indeed we're seeing the breakdown of the UN system, because if Russia gets away with it, that, that's going to be the breakdown of the UN system. Then you're going to go back to the balance of power. It's going to be really tough for Israel. Because, you know, it's it's just too easy for Iran and Syria, maybe Russia, and who knows what, just to gank up on one big thing against Israel. Israel cannot take on the whole united power of all the different Arabs and Muslim countries if they all go for it. If they all go for it. You don't realize that in all the wars of Israel, only a chilek of the Arabs were against them. A big chilek was not doing anything. That was the case in 48, 56, 67, 73, 82, all the wars. You know, in Gaza, it's a small chilek of the Arabs. Take on all the Arabs, Imam's in big trouble, you see? So, look what a complicated web Israel finds itself, the Jewish people find themselves. And to me, it's weird that it's happening Purim time, you know, in the month of Adar. Uh, so I, you know, I, I'm so only time will tell which way it's going. But on the other hand, let me let me put it this way: there is a possible scenario. I don't see it right now. There's a possible scenario if you go and break off from the UN system, 
they're going to go back to the balance of power system, then Israel will say like this, you take over this, take it, we're taking over the West Bank. We're just declaring it. Heck with it. You know? Uh, if they can get anybody to back them. Uh, we're, we're taking over the Golan Heights. We're doing this, that, and the other. But the Arabs can do the same thing. And says, so mom is going to be, you know, the rule of the jungle. Maybe that's Israel's way. You know, I'm mad to bunch of them uh, moves in funny ways. Maybe that's their way of taking over these, these lands. Or maybe not. But all I know is that um, the, the outcome of the present conflict is very portentous. If indeed it ends up um, meaning a switch from system A to system B, you don't realize probably that ever since 1945, which is all the life of the people listening to this podcast, I'm sure, um, you've lived under a United Nations system. And even though you know nobody could attack Russia or China or America, but in general, speaking in general terms, across the world, it kind of worked. You know, we have the, the, the integrity of the individual states. Maybe the states are bad, you know, maybe it's a dictatorship or something like that, but you have the, the borders are like inviolate. Um, now with Putin and all the rest of it, he's proposing to change the rules of the game. And it's not clear to me, you know, how this is going to play out. On the other hand, I definitely see, how should I put it, implications for Medinat Yisrael and maybe for Klai Yisrael emerging out of all this. Uh, therefore, there's plenty of room to dominate, right? Because I see it going this way or possibly going that way. It might be down to the benefit. It might be down to the, to the opposite. So uh, I mentioned the other day what is Reino Vianyenu all about. Uh, and, you know, Rashi said something like, I saw some instructions, this baby is what they had in mind. We're now in an international crisis. And even though Israel is not in the direct, and the Jews also, by the way, are not in the direct crosshairs, but we are very used in Jewish history to phenomena we call collateral damage. And, you know, stuff happens over there, and, but, the, but the result hits, uh, hits Israel. So I just wanted to share some of those uh, uh, thoughts. And the Golan particularly is one that interests me because I'll say again, it's crazy. Israel just unilaterally um, annexed the Golan in 1980. Nobody in the world was garrisoned. And then the United States of America, which is the biggest country in the world, all of a sudden under Trump, you know, uh, said, I hereby am garrisoned. Uh, you know, that's a yadash. It, it, it makes no sense. I'm not sure what it leads to. That is probably going to express itself in the coming months. But uh, since it's the month of Adar, uh, so let's hope it'll have a positive outcome for Claudius Roll. Anyway, again, I want to thank Morris uh, sponsoring over here. And uh, uh, there's just a couple ideas that I had today. Have a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.